Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Michael Toolbed, and today I'm in Yokohama, Japan, a few miles south of the capital city, Tokyo. This might seem like a rather strange place to be talking about Ottoman history, but here, in 1890, an important episode in Ottoman diplomacy took place. For three months, June to September of that year, the Ottoman warship, the frigate Ertarul, docked in the great port here at Yokohama. Today, it is a modern city, dominated by skyscrapers, but in the neighbourhoods around the port you can still get a sense of the older town, and the harbour is still full of ships. The Ertarul had been dispatched from Istanbul almost a year earlier on a friendship mission from Sultan Abdul Hamid II to the Meiji Emperor. Japanese warships, ambassadors and dignitaries had visited Istanbul a number of times in the 1870s and 1880s. After all, although separated by significant distance, Japan and the Ottoman Empire had much in common in terms of both imperial and anti-imperialist interests. Commercial treaties and military alliances had been discussed. It was after the visit to Yildiz Palace of a Japanese prince to Abdul Hamid II in 1887 that the Ottoman government decided to invest in a return visit. The Ertarul, a dependable if somewhat aging three-masted frigate, was appointed for the task along with its commander, Osman Pasha, and crew of several hundred sailors. The journey took the Ertarul through the Suez Canal, with stopping points on both sides of the Red Sea, before heading out into the Indian Ocean. The reception that the ship received en route to Japan exceeded all expectation, and perhaps reveals an alternate rationale for the mission beside that of building Ottoman-Japanese relations. In a letter sent to the Ottoman government by Osman Pasha, the ship's commander, from Singapore in December 1889, he claimed that his ship, which, quote, represents the glory and might of the Imperial Navy in the distant waters of the East, end quote, attracted significant attention from Muslims from all over Southeast Asia, most notably those living under Dutch and British colonial dominion, particularly those under Dutch rule in Java and Sumatra, and those also subject to the King of Siam. They came to complain of the treatment they received from their rulers and to plead for the intercession of the Ottoman Sultan as their caliph. It was, Osman Pasha explained, as if the ship had become a point of pilgrimage for oppressed Muslims, and he requested that the ship be permitted to stop in a number of Southeast Asian ports on its return voyage, including the Dutch colonial capital in Batavia, today's Jakarta, where a sizable Muslim community was gathering around the Ottoman consul. The Ertarul continued on to Saigon and finally arrived in the great port at Yokohama in June 1890. On arrival, the ship and its commander were greeted by the Meiji Emperor and his court retinue, and the gifts sent by Sultan Abdul Hamid II were presented. In their three-month stay here in Yokohama, the officers were treated to seemingly endless rounds of audiences, receptions, banquets and parties, and no doubt the regular crew of the ship found time to enjoy themselves too in the bustling port, although, perhaps unsurprisingly, the archives are rather silent on their day-to-day shenanigans. All good things must come to an end, and after a successful mission, in mid-September, the Ertarul set off on its homeward itinerary voyage. However, just three days afterwards, the ship encountered a huge storm on the coast of Kashimoto, a few hundred miles down the coast from here, and the ship sank with the loss of most of its crew, including its commander, Osman Pasha. The population in the area did their best to rescue the stricken sailors, but only 70 survived. Today, a monument commemorates this event, which also marks the site of the cemetery of the Ottoman sailors whose bodies were recovered and buried there. The Ertarul never got to finish its Asian mission, but it presents a tantalising historical what-if. Instead, memory of the disaster, such as there is memory of it, tends to overshadow memory of the mission itself. 
part symbol of Ottoman naval abilities and aspirations, part pan-Islamic standard bearer in the waters of Southeast and East Asia, part token of friendship between two old but distant Asian powers, the Ertarul's stay in the port here at Yokohama is an important episode in late Ottoman diplomacy and foreign policy, and reminds us that there were alternative visions for the global balance of power in the late 19th century, beyond that of European domination, emanating from the Japanese and Ottoman empires. Although there is no monument to the visit of the Ertarul here in Yokohama, perhaps through researching its mission, we can keep its memory alive. All right, so we, we're here with Jamil Aydin. We just heard a clip by Michael Talbot talking about the story of the air to rule. Jamil, what do you think about Michael's narrative? Oh, no, it's, it's fascinating, and, and I really enjoyed listening to it. And um, there's a great moment to reflect, 1890, um, uh, which is only 20 years after the opening of the Suez Canal, a, a kind of a, a great moment of transformation. And I should note in, in world history, that moment should be emphasized in the history of the 19th century, the Suez Canal moment. Um, because what, what they did is that every uh, Japanese and Chinese uh, intellectual politician going to Europe had to have this grand Asia tour and also passed through uh, uh, the former Ottoman and then later on still Ottoman protector territories yeah. of, the, of Egypt. And it's easier for them to um, also stop by in, in Turkey. So there were a lot of Japanese who could visit Istanbul, which, which indicates that this late 19th century European imperial hegemony globalization led to stronger and more intense inter-Asian connections. Mm. Um, and I think Niall Green wrote about this topic of this age of uh, steam and print and how late 19th century also have, have led to more awareness among Muslims, among Asians and Easterners uh, about each other, but more chances to travel and visit. Um, so the Arturo story starts with that, a Japanese delegation visiting mm -hmm. Istanbul and there's a return um, trip. Uh, but it, it's fascinating that it's this exchange of medals uh, between these uh, two non-European kingdoms, which are subject to unequal treaties and capitulations, both of them. In fact, uh, it's the Egyptian Ottoman model of unequal treaties being applied to Japan. And, mm -hmm. and in earlier times, actually, Japan sent delegations to study how Egypt uh, dealt with unequal treaties with mixed courts and whether what they can learn. So, mm -hmm. so in, in 1890, Japan still seems similar to the Ottomans. Right, they have all these uh, affinities yes. and uh, similarities, uh, none of which ha have to do that much with, of course, the subject of uh, your most recent book, The Idea of the Muslim World, uh, and this the politics of pan-Islam. But as we heard from Michael in the clip, um, Osman Pasha, the, the, the captain of the... the he, he was made Pasha on the way, yes. Yeah, who <laughs> became a Pasha through his uh, journey uh, with the Air to Rule. Uh, talked about the uh, sort of pan-Islamic resonances that he encountered 
um, in Southeast Asia. What do you make of this? How does this uh, fit with no, your reading the, the, of the history? This is fascinating. So these uh, uh, Indian Ocean port cities um, became interlinked even stronger. So the Indian Ocean under British Dutch rule, but the British is the big boss there, uh, became like a Muslim lake, that kind of empowering Muslim merchants to visit each other. The, the led to a boom of a uh, number of Muslims visiting Mecca with cheap um, uh, cheap ticket prices, mm -hmm. basically, with the steamships. Um, and, and the awareness of these uh, port city Muslim publics about the global developments in the Ottoman Empire and this position and, and thinking that their destinies are interlinked mm -hmm. as racialized Muslims. So that you can see that excitement in this British protector Singapore, uh, which is a major hub for actually trips to Mecca too, um, in, in that part. So the... The, the 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 Ottomans were not anti-imperial, obviously. They're 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 sailing in that British Muslim Indian Ocean, but they're also benefiting from the symbiotic relationship of among empires, and their soft power and, and credibility and prestige is much higher than the actual uh, quality of their ship or also their economic and military power. But that you know the power could be relative in in that sense. So the Ottomans. The Ottoman crew actually realizing uh, that uh, the world of Islam is bigger than the world of Osman, and, and the majority of the Muslims are in these oceans. And it must also be an, a kind of age of exploration for the Ottomans, where they are discovering right. um, the, these mis Muslim populations on the way to uh, to Japan, mm -hmm. as Japanese are discovering other Asians or Muslims on the way to Europe. It's, 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 the steamships can take you in many different places on the way. And so, as we also learn from the story, you know, the the mission comes to a an, an, an unhappy end with the Ertuğrul sinking and most of its crew not surviving. But the story of them sort of being saved um, by the Japanese lives on in in, in this this memory of uh, maybe uh, Turkish Japanese uh, friendship today. It's it's still um, evoked from time to time. Uh, but I'm wondering because uh, uh, your first book actually dealt with. Uh, a lot of these uh, Asian connections. And uh, so, the, you know, after the Arab rule, of course, you have a very important um, political conflict between uh, Japan and the arch enemies, basically, of the Ottoman Empire, the Russian Empire, yeah. uh, the Russo-Japanese War. Um, could you talk about yeah, so Ottoman engagement with that conflict? Sort of, this is we're talking about maybe less than two decades after yeah. the Arab rule. It's only 15 years. Yeah, 15 years. Um, but on the way, of course, there is one other war, uh, very important for Japan's global credibility, mm. a war against China, which many right. people thought China would win because they had a better, stronger navy. Mm -hmm. But Japanese navy was was very agile and very quick. Um, so that gave Japan uh, a lot of money through reparations, but also a prestige that among the different non-European kingdoms and polities, the self-strengthening is working mm -hmm. in contrast to China. Uh, so, but this event is before all of that. So Japan's level is not clear that there's no Japan exceptionalism yet. It's just mm -hmm. modernizing, but it's very comparable to the Ottomans. It's the peak of Tanzimat, but also peak of Tanzimat reinterpreted through Abdulhamid regime. It's also peak of uh, Japan's Tanzimat. It's called Bummei Kaika. Uh, and I should note, uh, based on Michael Penn's research, that this aid campaign to to raise money for the, the victims of uh, of Arturol in Japan 
um, relies as much on Japan trying to show a civilized uh, modern face as solidarity among Asian peoples. Yeah. So the, there's the pride that we're such mm-hmm. a civilized nation that we take care of our guests and, and each other, and then the delegation goes in. But then there's some sort of Asian links and, and Pan-Asian links are being established. Mm-hmm. From that moment until 1905, it's a very short period of time, but when 1905 happens, uh, we see a kind of a, a global celebration of Japan's victory, even though that war is extremely imperial and Japan at that point is an ally of the British Empire. Yeah, But even the subjects of the British Empire celebrate Japanese uh, victory um the the also thinking that that is weakening british racial discrimination so the egyptians are celebrating it um or indians are celebrating it because I, we forget how powerful the ideologies of race was mm-hmm. in late 19th or 20th century so the it, it story was probably the age of empire the imperial world is being overcome by the logic of race and geopolitics Right, um, and, and and the British was very puzzled too because they weren't sure where, whether they should be happy that Japan won, which they supported, or they should be concerned and be paranoid about the implications of Japanese victory, which is then associated with the Yellow Peril discourses. Mm. So uh, technically, they weren't supposed to fear Japanese victory, but they did uh, be, because of they believed in in racial. Um, racial uh, hierarchies and and Japan of course became quickly became a proof that European racial hierarchies are wrong because Japan was at the bottom. Well, how was the victory received in the Ottoman Empire? Very positively. Uh, it's um, I, I think there's the continuity between you know Crimean War and and Doxani Charbi mm-hmm. and and Russo-Japanese War in the sense that these wars were covered by uh, naive journalism, telegraphic journalism, mm-hmm. the pictures and so it, it was very well covered, and its immediate association with Japan um, as a colored uh, race. So that seems like Muslim Shinto alliance was there, but that shows how important race was, right? In in a in a formal uh, classification in, in earlier Muslim texts, yeah. um, however you interpret them, a, a Christian Russian is actually better than a Shinto, um, but then. Ottomans and Egyptians and Persians, they all sympathize with Japan, not with the Christian Russians. There's actually an interesting um, British propaganda effort in World War II when they were fighting with Japan, telling mm-hmm. Indian Muslims that these Shintos are like idol worshippers. Yeah. And they should, their sympathies should be with the Ahli Kitab British, uh-huh. which is not the point, right? That, uh, right? that the racial solidarity, global racial solidarity, color solidarity, it's not about these kind of theological nuances right. in, in, in some ways. And, uh, I mean, we need to talk to our Russianist colleagues in, 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 in that sense, like how did Russian Muslims were also on the Russian army. Sure. In fact, the first uh, mosque in Japan was built for the Russian Muslim POWs in Japan, a kind of a temporary wooden mosque mm. um, in the POW camps. Mm. Um and these Russian POWs were treated extremely well. That's uh, it's also an interesting thing about the Japanese modernism and, yeah. and civilization discourse that um, that they weren't that nice to their POWs in World War II for some reason. But the, the, they were white POWs and they um, were shown this kind of civilized treatment, including Muslims who were mm-hmm. in, in Russian camps. Yeah. Thank you, Jamil. Thank you. Thanks for that.
Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. You can find our complete interview with Jamil Aydin on his new book, uh, The Idea of the Muslim World, on our website, autumnhistorypodcast.com.